Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and walls of institutional Christianity. We have got an amazing interview for you for this episode. But before we get to that, I'd like to just quickly remind you that you can find all of the content that our Accidental Tomatoes team is creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find every episode of the podcast, as well as blog entries on a wide variety of topics related to religious deconstruction, social justice, and liberation theology. And if you're inspired by our work and would like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Accidental Tomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate content that's helping people navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma, deconstruction, and trying to build a more just, more inclusive world. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for new wineskins, a fully inclusive, non-traditional online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level than many can experience in the institutional church. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. For this episode of the podcast, Brad Davis joins me once again for a conversation with Kenzie Walker, the executive director of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, West Virginia. Kenzie has a lot of really insightful things to say about West Virginia's coal mining heritage, its role in the U.S. labor movement of the early 20th century, and how the Mine Wars Museum and others are working to overcome the intentional erasure of much of that history from school curricula and historical research. So please join us in giving a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Kenzie Walker. Coal companies at this time really were the law of the land, essentially. Uh, You know, they owned everything. It's like the miners, what did they have to lose, you know, other than their lives? And some of them would like them. Well, hey, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Brad Davis is back with me in the co-host chair. I'm Joe Webb, and our guest today is Kenzie Walker from the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. We've got a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, And so, Kenzie, welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. We're glad to have you. Joe and Brad, thank you so much for bringing me on. I'm excited to be here. So, so grateful that you were able to make this time. Brad, uh, what do you think? Are you ready? Uh, I think we got some good stuff for the folks today. Oh, I'm excited. I, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to having Kenzie with us today. Hi, Kenzie. Hey, Brad. It's so good to see you again. It's been a few months since Brad and I worked together on this uh, project to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial, which was beautiful and amazing and magical. Um, and it's good to be back in the in the same room with you. Likewise. <laughs> likewise. It's been too long. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I think this is good. I think we've got a lot of really interesting stuff to cover, right? You know, I think Brad introduced you and I, Kenzie, at that celebration um, down in Logan last was September, I guess, of 2021, um, which was, yeah, all of the things you said were good, 
descriptors of that um, of that moment in time. So, Kenzie, again, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you just um, really quickly introduce yourself to the folks and tell us who you are and what you do, and we will we'll dive in. Yeah, no problem. So, as you said, my name is Kenzie New Walker, and I work for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, which is a people's history museum located in historic Maitland in Mingo County. We sit you know, right on the border of Southern West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. So we're in the heart of the Appalachian coal fields. Um, and we've been there for about eight years. I am super proud and humbled and honored every day to work at the museum. I am the daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of Union West Virginia coal miners. Um, you know, three of four of my great-grandfathers on my dad's side all worked in the coal mines, and they all worked UMWA. The other one, um, Papa Troy, was a paratrooper in Germany, so he he did not go underground, but he, he did go overseas. Um, I, you know, started working at the museum right after I graduated college at Marshall. I graduated with a history and political science degree, and the goal for me was to go to law school, and I spent a little bit of time working in a law office after undergrad, and I was like, I don't think this is going to work out for the rest of my <laughs> life, and so I uh, I did my history thesis on the rhetoric surrounding the Mate One Massacre, and was really, I got really interested in what the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum was doing. It was, I think, it would have been three years old at this time. And they were telling this history from a perspective that had never been done in like a state history textbook. It was very authentic for me and the stories that I grew up listening to from Papa or from dad and um, really just got so interested in like what these folks were doing. Built, they built a museum from scratch. It, it was um, the result of you know, people who didn't have any kind of museum experience, but had a lot of passion and a lot of pride in this history and wanted to see it preserved and like put and pushed out into the public. And so uh, they, the Mine Wars Museum was part of my history thesis. And I saw, you know, I guess it was in the fall of 2018 that they were hiring a director and I jumped at the opportunity. It's like, this would be super cool. And I could actually put my degree to work in, in the Southern coal fields, which was like, who does know, that? Who, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who puts their degree to work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we, I grew up being told like, you know, if you want to have any kind of future, you've got to leave here, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it ended up being the farthest thing from the truth. And I feel very like blessed to be able to do this work because I know that that's not, it's just not realistic for a lot of people, at least at this, this point of, in time that we're in. Um, you know, like a lot of my friends, their situations are much, much more different. So I've been at the museum since fall of 2018, so three and a half years now. And it's been a lot of fun, a lot of big projects, and I've met a lot of amazing people like you and Brad. Yeah, y'all, y'all are busy, but like, you know, following you guys on, uh, on social media, um, you know, to be, to be located in, in such a, a, a rural kind of remote area, um, that I, I know that just kind of, um, creates a lot of, you know, 
people envision that a lot of different ways, but um, man, y'all got a ton of stuff going on. Yeah, we ain't slowing down anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, we're we're still in our prime, I think. You know, we're the museum is only eight years old at this point. You know, the first ever meeting happened in 2013. And between that period and the time of the museum's opening in 2015, there was a lot of planning that went into play. Um, not only just for the exhibits, but you know, folks were like, okay, how do we get our IRS paperwork in, in yeah, line? Yeah. How do you become a nonprofit? So there were a lot of those questions. Um, but yeah, we've been, we've been busy since, since the beginning. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, and I'm thinking uh, just as, as we kind of get into this, I, a lot of folks, I suspect if they have any knowledge of, what we're talking about with the mine wars, you, you mentioned the battle of Blair mountain, the mate one massacre, those things, uh, you know, people maybe have seen the movie mate one and that is probably all they know <laughs> about that story. And that's such a, a small microcosm and not even, you know, an incredibly historically accurate one, but it, I mean, people do what they have to do to write movies. We understand that. But um, so how would you, you know, for somebody whose only knowledge of your, of your area and of these things that you're talking about is like from that movie, um, how would you kind of explain really what, you know, why the Mind Wars Museum is so important? What is the history um, that you're working so hard to preserve? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. And I feel like I, I've been here for three and a half years and it's still hard for me to kind of pare down in like a two minute pitch, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Um, so the West Virginia Mine Wars were decades long, um, and it was really, you know, not one singular event. It was a series of strikes and struggles by uh, mine workers and their families from the early 1900s when, when um, the railroads came into town and set up shops and established coal company housing. And so there's a generation, you know, let me back up. <laughs> yeah. There, it's like the Southern West Virginia kind of changed within one generation. So, you know, families went from working on their farms and tending to the land. Uh, and with the coming of these out-of-state corporations, the land was stolen or purchased for very little and some families were signing over things that they didn't quite realize what they were signing over and so you know we start to see these uh company towns pop up and i i feel like it's very important for folks to grasp the the realities of what a company town was there was no mayor there was no you know like uh, elected officials or the company were, were the folks that kept order. You know, they controlled everything that happened in that town, both um, economically, socially, politically. Um, miners were paid in script. So they were, um, you know, in debt almost instantaneously to yeah. the coal companies. They went to a company church. Uh, and had a company preacher 
and they went to a company school and they had a company teacher. And so it it is hard to overstate the kind of control that existed in these companies. Um, what's more than that is that they hired uh, private uh, detectives who were like cosplay police. Um, and it was their job was to essentially keep the union out of town. You know, they were paid big bucks. Most of them in Southern West Virginia were um, employed through the Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency, which was an organization in Virginia. And I'll say Bob Hutton, Dr. Bob Hutton has done some incredible work on, you know, what this organization was and what it was about. And so essentially, I feel like I can always ramble on this. Essentially, they were, the miners and their families were trapped and their backs were up against the wall for decades. You know, so something like Blair Mountain, which was the largest armed labor uprising um, since the Civil War, did not happen overnight. It was not something that happened in one year. It was decades of, you know, um, being kept down. And so the mine wars collectively represent, you know, um, this complex and incredible story of what it was like to build a union in the early 1920s. I was just going to say that as as a fellow Southern West Virginia native, a Coalfield native, as as Kenzie is as well, and and someone who studied history as well and has an undergrad degree in history, and as a of someone who grew up in the Southern Coalfields and won the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, now listen, you got to explain what the Golden I'm Horseshoe. Getting ready not to, everybody for, went to eighth grade for, in West for, Virginia. For, for those of you who are non-West Virginians, the, the Golden Horseshoe Award is it's a statewide competition for eighth graders. Who, who eighth grade is when you traditionally take West Virginia history and you take this test, and the top scorers in each county win what is called the Golden Horseshoe Award. Uh, I I was a winner way way back when of that from Mingo County. Mingo County, which was, by the way, the destination of the marching miners. That's where they intended to go. But I never learned any of this in school. I, I'm, I'm, I, I score, I, I'm a golden knight, uh, a knight of the golden horseshoe, supposedly an expert in West Virginia history, and I never learned this. So, uh, Kenzie, Tell us why this work, what you just laid out and that history you just informed us about, why it is so important that the museum and those that are involved with it collect, document, preserve this history and tell it. And as you guys like to say, and it really is a, a people's history uh, of what happened here during the labor strife of the early 20th century. That's a great question, Brad. And I'll say you're not alone in not learning this because it not just for West Virginians, but Americans. Like this is a story that has national implications, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but folks will walk in the museum and be like, now what is this again? What are what are the mind wars? And that people not learning about this history, first of all, is not by any accident or like mm -hmm. oversight it was very intentional 
And so when miners left the Battle of Blair Mountain, the battle ended with the miners surrendering. The federal government was called in and, and miners laid down their arms and said, you know, we'll fight the coal companies. We're not going to fight Uncle Sam. And uh, a lot of them went home and after the Battle of Blair Mountain, they were then tried, many of them indicted and tried for treason. And so off the bat, there is this kind of secrecy that miners had within themselves where they were sworn, you know, we will not tell on our fellow brother or sister for being up on this mountain. And so this became a history that was like talked about on front porches and kitchen tables, not really, you know, in a public setting because you could be tried for treason, a very, very serious thing. And um, so that's what kind of happened in the, in the, um, circles that the miners were existing in. Now in the 1930s, uh, all of the states were writing their state histories. There was a project by the um, Works Progress Administration, I believe that's correct, where they were sending historians around to each state to essentially capture and collect histories and stories from that state. And we have a letter in the museum on exhibit where the governor very explicitly told, um, you know, air state historian, hey, do not, we don't want to see any mention of the Weirton steel strikes, of the Miners March, or Mother Jones. And so this was in the 1930s, wow. right after the Battle of Blair Mountain, you know, a few years removed from the Battle of Blair Mountain. And it was very intentional to keep this out of uh, public um, knowledge. And so that was the very first piece of like censorship that is so very clear and undeniable um, that we see. And so then, of course, we get this trend where uh, for decades, it wasn't until the 1970s that the mine wars was mentioned in the state history book. And we have a really great, in the same exhibit area, uh, under the, the legacy and memory of the mine wars, we have a series of history books, you know, where you can liter quite literally flip through the decades and see where this history should have been mentioned, but instead it was intentionally omitted. And so from the get-go, from the very first meeting, I would say it's like youth education has been so important because I think it's, it's really a part of the museum's mission that this history does not miss another generation and no other West Virginians going West Virginian will graduate without the opportunity to learn about the mines. And so, you know, we've built out this entire curriculum and programming geared just for that. And so we have um, lesson plans that are specific to those eighth graders I don't think that there's a golden horseshoe test or question about the mine wars yet. There should be. Um, but we have like a two-week curriculum that teachers can follow. And, you know, they'll, they'll be able to teach everything from what was life like in the coal camps compared to like the town of Mate One today. Mate One was an incorporated town and that's that's kind of why the battle took place there. Um, they can learn about the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strikes, the battles in Mate One and Blair Mountain, um, communities that existed in Southern West Virginia. So 
uh, we felt really strongly about getting this into uh, the school curriculum. And teachers were really and have been really receptive to that. Um, you know, especially I feel like we saw a big jump after the 2018 and 2019 teacher strikes because we saw a lot of our teachers wearing the red bandana around their necks. And for folks that um, are, are maybe a little bit unfamiliar with the story, the miners who marched on Blair Mountain, their uniform was essentially the red bandana. They became the redneck army. And so, you know, we get this uh, popularized term of rednecks during this era. Now, of course, this term was used before you know, the mine wars and the battle of Blair Mountain, but it was really at its height during this time. Um, of course, we also have like field trips. We love, love, love to welcome students into the museum. And it's something that we've really missed these past couple of years with the pandemic. Um, so we weren't able to have students come in. So we were, you know, toying a little bit with virtual field trips, but it's not the same as the human connection <laughs> and so it's been it's been really amazing like this past spring we've had like eight to ten tour groups come in both from like you know Gilbert Middle School right over the right over the mountain um right over Horseman Mountain but also folks that come down from like Morgantown Learning Academy or Berea College and so we are very much welcoming the students near and far. And like, if there's a teacher that is listening, reach out to us. We always, you know, form our uh, field trips around your needs and your students' needs. So if you're like, I'm really interested in this or that, like we can do that. We just want to make sure like the students have an opportunity to come and learn. And no student leaves without a red bandana uh, and a challenge from, from Miss Wilma Steele. Um, and we're, we're always down to do classroom visits as well. Um, so we, we love visiting folks and, and talking about this history and spreading the gospel any way that we can. <laughs> so it's interesting. You say that Kenzie, you're spreading the gospel because I have a copy of the curriculum that you all have developed and, and a good friend of mine and colleague, Reverend Eric Biondi, he, he and I have discussed uh, adapting that curriculum for a Sunday school class for church. Yes, we would so be willing to pilot that with y'all if you think oh, that's appropriate. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's so interesting. I was thinking, you know, when you mentioned that it didn't really show up in the history books until like the seventies. Right before you said that, I was thinking, you know, when I I grew up in a different part of West Virginia, and you know we. We were we're aware that West Virginia is coal country, you know. Obviously, know where kind of geographically, um, you know, the coal field area is. But you know, we again, I didn't learn anything about that when I was growing up in school, and I'm I'm a little bit older than both y'all, but I do remember. And I and I wonder if this is, um, if it's if it's a coincidence or if it just kind of happened this way. But um, the the um, Buffalo Creek flood in what was it, 1970 two or three, somewhere around there. I, I think that was the event that sort of opened up the media to seeing the injustice that was still being imposed on folks from, you know, that part of West Virginia and, and Eastern Kentucky. Uh, you know, when this, when this dam breaks and, and, you know, millions of gallons of, you know, coal slurry wiped out people's homes and entire towns and, 
Um, I, I think that was one of the things that started to get people thinking, we, we need to start telling this story more broadly now. I don't know. Does that, does that resonate or? It, it definitely resonates, but I had not drawn that connection before. And so yeah. it's very interesting to me. And I think that's worth exploring. Like I mean, I just know for me, that was, and I, I can't, I was probably 10 or 12 years old when that happened, something like that. Um, so I was of an age where, like I was beginning to understand what was going on in the world a little bit more. And my, I remember my dad and my granddad driving. My granddad lived in St. Albans, um, just outside of Charleston, West Virginia. And he drove us down, you know, this was two weeks after the flood. Um, but just so we could kind of see what happened, cause you know, it was important to him. My, my granddad was a union man from Charleston. Um, and, uh, he, it was important for him, you know, that we saw, you know, this was not, you know, a, a natural disaster. This was not a, um, you know, a will of God thing or anything like that. It was, uh, it was man-made <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the companies, you know, that, that ruled that neck of the woods were to blame, you know, for, for that devastation and death and destruction. So we talked, you know, a little bit about why it's important to preserve that history. Um, the, the West Virginia mine wars, that whole era. And, and as you said, Kenzie, it wasn't, you know, just a one, one shot thing like this. It was decades and decades in the making. What is, um, how do we see the, the West Virginia mine wars in the broader scope of the American labor movement? Cause that was a really important part of the larger labor movement that was happening across the country in the early 20th century. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn from what was going on in the early 20th century to what is going on now in our country. Mm. Um, and I think West Virginia, as always, is a leader in, in the labor movement and, you know, otherwise. So, of course, the Battle of Blair Mountain ended in, in 1921, and then we see the treason trials and miners go home. After that decade, um, I should probably be fact-checked on this, but I think this is true that there were more um, mine deaths underground than any other period, you know, ever. Because some people will argue that miners lost at Blair Mountain and then you know, some people will say, you know, well, they won because 10 years later we're granted um, this this right to unionize and form a union. I think, you know, in terms of the broader labor movement, like one thing that I want to make clear to folks, like this wasn't just about labor justice. This had wider implications for civil rights and civil liberties. And so, mm. you know, talking about, the private police power that was going on, you know, minors were oftentimes stripped of their right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Minors had to sign these things called yellow dog contracts, which were pretty much like, I will not join the union or speak of joining the union, please sign here. And so they, they, you know, were stripped of all these rights that were, enjoyed by most Americans elsewhere. And so, you know, um, I think the same is true for like the West Virginia teacher strikes in 2018 and 2019. Again, we see this being rippled across the United States uh, and carried to places like 
as far away as LA. And so um, I think that the miners who were fighting on Blair Mountain and who fought on Blair Mountain, you know, they uh, weren't just fighting for themselves. And I think that they knew that, you know, they would probably not see um, or knew that there, there was this risk that they could could die on this mountain. They were be engaging in a battle and they knew that they would not see, you know, the, the benefits. I'm trying to think of like how to frame this. Yeah, yeah. They, they wouldn't see the benefits of that fight, but everyone else would, you know, any kind of worker um, or generations after them would be um, freed from, you know, kind of this, this system of um, being in debt to the coal companies. And so yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, West Virginia in a lot of ways is uh, ground zero for the labor movement then and now. I was just thinking how um, like the Starbucks workers and the Amazon workers that are unionizing here in 2022 have West Virginia coal miners a hundred years ago to thank, you know, for their ability to do that. I just, you know, that connection is a direct line, right? Yeah. I think it's really inspiring, but it's also like these rights should have been secured a hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it is important to make those connections and see like this moment in time, um, where people were coming together in the face of like incredibly great odds, you know, I mean, um, coal companies at this time really were the law of the land, essentially. Uh, you know, they owned everything. It's like the miners, what did they have to lose, you know, yeah. other than their lives? You know, some of them would lay down their lives. And I think it's an also incredible incredibly power in, empowering and like to see this one moment in time especially in the 1920s where people were coming together across religious differences across um racial differences across gender differences and it happened in the southern coal fields of west virginia and i think this is also part of our curricula is that west virginia is not this white region that we're taught it is but in fact, um, West Virginia was pretty diverse at one time. You know, the, the folks that made up uh, the Redneck Army were 50% white and 50% black or immigrant born. And so we see this incredible, uh, I think one of the, the uh, co-operators called it a judicious mixture. And I put quotations around mm -hmm. that of people who lived in these coal camps because it was a strategy that the coal operators employed, which was, you know, if they don't um, speak the same language or talk like you or look like you or worship like you, then, you know, there's no way these folks are going to come together. You know, it, they, they were situating it to where it would be um, infighting between these groups and i'm sure that there was you know um there there certainly was infighting and there was racism that happened in the camps and but there is a moment in time where you know look 
the the war isn't against each other, but instead the war is against this these cooperators who are mm. who are ruling us. And so I think that um, it's a really powerful story, and it has the the potential to bring a lot of people together. And I think um, that's that's a lot of what we try to do at the museum. Um, We'll we'll get into this new monuments project, but I'm I'm really excited to talk about that with y'all too. Kenzie, you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago about the fact that this was the the mine wars were bigger than just uh, it, it was more than just about labor. It was more than just about labor rights. That that it was uh, also. Uh, equally important in the struggle was the struggle for civil rights. Um, and, and I always draw the connotation uh, and say that it's the same fight that they were fighting for as, let's say, like the Black Lives Matter movement in the 21st century, uh, because you've got people who are standing up and demanding to be treated and viewed as human beings above all else. Um, and I just find that interesting that it, you mentioned the parallels between movements then, the movement then and movements now. And, and I think yeah, you're right. And we can draw connotations and parallels between the mind wars, the civil rights movement, uh, the BLM movement uh, of contemporary times. It's very fascinating to take a look at all of that. Yeah, the, you know, the the fight against exploitation is as old as humanity, I guess. Um, I, I, Brad and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about whether the, the Adam and Eve narrative, you know, whether you subscribe to it as um, fact or fiction or whatever, um, that, that maybe it's less about disobedience and more about exploitation and violence, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, that what what happens in these labor movements is sort of a microcosm and in these civil rights movements is a microcosm of this struggle that's been going on um for all of time and, and you would think we would have evolved further <laughs> than we have by now um but that that kind of leads me into the next question because uh, and this is again something brad and i talk about a good bit is the the intersection um between labor movements um unionization efforts all of that stuff and um, and faith and spirituality, you know, whether that's, you know, Christianity of some brand or, you know, other other types of faith traditions, um, this this movement against exploitation is sort of a common thread throughout a lot of faith movements. I just I'm curious, um, you know, where where you see room um, for those intersections, Kenzie? Yeah, this this is a good question. I feel like it's a question for Brad. Um but I mean, I think Brad wrote this question so. <laughs> very, very plainly. You know, there was room for intersections during the mine wars. There's room for it now. Um, like, there's a great quote that we have on the wall of the museum of this reverend uh, who lived in the town of Blair itself, and his family was eating dinner one night, and a bullet comes through. And I, I can't remember where the bullet hits, but it's John Wilburn, Reverend John Wilburn says, the time has come for me to lay down my Bible and pick up my rifle. And I love that quote because he's like, you know what? Let's head to the mountain um, and joins in the fight. And so, um, 
Yeah, I feel like that's the plainest way I can put it. I don't know. Like, mm. I don't feel like I have any more to add to that. But Brad might, and I would welcome him to <laughs> pitch in here. <laughs> I, I just, I, I really think that um, this is why this story is so incredibly important uh, and, and so relevant. It continues to be so relevant. Uh up to today, um, because we talk about exploitation, right? Um, even though the, the company system, so to speak, uh, was broken after unionization was legalized in, in coal fields in the 1930s with the FDR administration, um, but the 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 legacy of that system continues. And we as a coalfield people in this region continue to be exploited. Uh, and, and I think that is why the story is so important because if we can somehow, some way um, rediscover uh, not only what happened then, but the fact that uh, that's our legacy. Um, that that we are people who stood up for ourselves and claimed that we are not what you say we are. We are not simply uh, machinery to be discarded uh, when it breaks down, but we are human beings made in the image of God and of sacred worth mm. um, and, and, and should never be exploited. Um, so I, I think that's why this story, why what the West Virginia Mind Wars Museum, uh, a quick plug, by the way, I am a member of the museum. <laughs> I'm a card carrying member, proud of it. Um, but that's why the work is so important, because the, the story really has the ability to reshape and, and re, reformulate our own narrative today in the yeah. Brad, you said it a lot more crystal clear than I could have. And I think, you know, what has crystallized for me over these past couple years is like this history of resistance in the mountain state. And it's not just my worst, you know, it's it's something that is alive and well to, today. Um so yeah, and I appreciate the plug for for being a card carrying member y'all anyone who's listening should sign up if you want to see the museum stick around for generations um you can go to wvmindwars.org slash join and figure out how you can help and one of those ways is becoming a member and that's fantastic so that um you, you've got another project and you touched on it just a second ago kenzie your uh this monument um initiative that you've been working on so I'm sure, you know, membership in the museum helps, um, you know, catalyze and finance a lot of that kind of stuff. What is what is this um, this monument initiative that you all are working on? I'm so glad you asked. So we've got this new project that is really coming together beautifully at the museum. And we're calling it Courage in the Hollers. And we are dedicating monuments to our ancestors who stood up in the face of power. Um, 
And this project is coming on the heels of, of the Blair Centennial. So we had this very successful um, three-year organizing campaign to uh, commemorate, and celebrate, and memorialize the Battle of Blair Mountain during its 100-year anniversary. And we had tons of people really from Morgantown to McDowell County who planned events and programming and said, yes, we want this in our community. We want our people to know this history. We want our people to come together. And it was like really a lifetime, you know, such a special moment. And we heard from a lot of folks who were like, we should, you know, have this history out in the public. We should have it, you know, have permanent reminders to this history beyond the four walls of the museum. So like one of the special programs that happened during the Blair Centennial uh, was this project called Blair Footsteps. And it was temporary signage uh, that was situated along this 50 mile marching route that miners took, you know, 101 years ago, almost. And, um, um, it was only up for two weeks, and so then it had to come down due to funding and uh, other things. And so during the centennial process, the museum, of course, is always fundraising. Uh, we are not state-funded. You know, we're a nonprofit, so we're constantly, we run off of individual donations and, and grants, and we really do a lot with a little. Um, so we applied for this national call, actually, through Monument Lab. It's an organization that's based out of Philadelphia. They, I think they've been around for about 10 years, and they had this new project called Regeneration, and it's, it's nationwide. So the Mine Wars Museum is one out of 10 in the entire country that received this grant. And it's the only one that's representing Appalachia and union labor. And so essentially our project is a new monument project uh, that will reverse the erasure of mine wars memory in the rural landscape. So um, other than the museum, which is located in Maitland, and there's a little tiny state issued marker at the foot of Blair Mountain, um, nothing else exists out in the landscape, uh, you know, that, that really honors this history. And so we are looking to change that. And we are changing that. And like anything we do, um, we really value like this participatory process, which is kind of how, what made Blair Centennial so successful is bringing folks around the table to talk that usually you know, they don't talk to each other because they're one county over or one person's from this town, one person's from that town. So we really um, are embracing this idea that, you know, people hold the power to like what their futures can be. And so um, we, our first phase of the project is taking place in Marmette and in Clothier. And so Marmette is this tiny town right outside of Charleston. This is where the miners um, kind of gathered around right before they took off towards on Domingo. You know, as Brad said earlier, the miners were marching to, to Domingo County and Williamson and they met in Marmette. And so we were like, you know, let's pick Marmette as a site. We reach out to the, some folks in town. They're like, yes, you know, you can use our community center. You can do this. And so um, we're working with folks in Marmette and then, we're also working with folks in a local union hall in Clothier. 
Um, and so Clothier is like kind of at the other end of the march, right before you get to, to Blair. And so we chose these two sites because right now we only have the budget for two sites. And uh, they're considered like the starting and end points of the march. And so it felt like, you know, if we can get these two and then build out around them, um, it would be a great start. And so we started having community meetings in February. We had them monthly up until last May uh, when we finalized a monument design and we're gonna start building. We're launching into this um, new phase. So we're leaving planning and going to implementation and we will be installing and dedicating monuments Labor Day weekend of this year. Uh, so if you're looking to to celebrate labor, celebrate this history, come down to Marmette and Clothier. We, I don't have like specific dates just yet because we're still trying to narrow down the details, but it will take place sometime that weekend. And, you know, these, these monuments have been co-created alongside, you know, community members that make up, you know, what and who that community is today. And it's been really, really special. I think I've got to meet a lot of incredible folks who um, are passionate about this history. And like, you know, you, you've had a really successful project when at the end folks don't want to leave the last meeting. <laughs> Usually people are like making a beeline for the door, but everyone felt like, you know, really included and respected. At least that's what the evaluation of Worm said. <laughs> and um it's been really cool. So like, this is something that like, we want to replicate beyond Marmot and Clothier. So the goal is to continue building out, you know, these places of memory where people can go gather, um, celebrate, and, you know, it will, uh, it will be out in the public landscape. I mean, of course we have the museum, but we have to bring people to the museum, get them to come inside. Whereas having monuments out in the world that people can't look away with and to say like this story belongs in the public, you know, I think there's a really powerful thing behind that. And I hope to see a whole trail and constellation of monuments that go up where people, um, you know, can have a lot of pride in this story and that their community or their ancestors were a part of it and, you know, one day walk this land um, just as we did today. So it's it's been a really incredible project. And I think that, like, there's a lot of places where it can grow and grow into and grow with. And um, it, it makes me really excited. It makes my work worthwhile. That's a, a great way to follow up Labor Day weekend of last year when we had the, the Blair Centennial celebration. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic follow up. Yeah. And just, you know, I, I, the, the next question I was going to ask you was about like, where do you see hope um, in the midst of all of this? And, and, and to me, I think that that idea of monuments in the landscape in these towns where this history happened is a way of reigniting hope for some of these communities, probably. Yeah, it's like, not only is it about honoring, it's certainly about honoring your history and like the history of our ancestors and holding that legacy. I think 
something else that is happening, especially in small towns, is like it's a big boost to come together and do a project and see it be completed. You know, it's like, all right, what else do we want to do? I feel like just a few years ago, I thought that things just happened. I didn't really question why or how, but it takes a lot of guts for people to come together and say, hey, we're going to build a museum or we want to see it. Can It doesn't have to be a museum or history oriented. It could be, you know, we want to see this new park um, established downtown. And it's all about getting people together to have that conversation, even if they're hard conversations. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's. There's this quote that's like, we don't need, West Virginians don't need um, people to come in and save us. We need each other. You know, mm-hmm. we really need each other and we'll figure it out. You know, it's like there's power in numbers like we see from this history. There's power in coming together. Um, and, you know, that's an important part of my work is like bringing people together. That's that's what it's all about. Well, we are, this, it's, this is all so fascinating. I could go on um, for a long time, but we are, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time. I wanted to give you a chance um, to plug another little thing you're working on because you guys have a podcast too, right? And so, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, um, the Mind Wars Forum and, and what, what you're covering on, on your podcast. Yeah. So it's technically not a podcast. It's like live interviews that happen on our YouTube and Facebook page. And we launched Mind Wars Forum in the spring of 2020, which, if you remember, the world was shut down. Mm. And so was the museum. I mean, at this point, um, I guess I got to backtrack a little bit and say in 2019, Air Board of Directors made the decision to move across the street and make one. So we're still in downtown Mate One, but in the past few years, we've relocated to this new union-owned building. It's feels like larger than life like it's it's really incredible if you haven't seen the museum come down to make one and see us um but we launched mind wars forum as a way to like stay connected to our museum members to the public and make sure that this these stories were reaching the public uh it was a very special year because it was the 100th anniversary of the battle of make one and we had planned to to reopen the museum in conjunction with that anniversary, but it didn't happen. And so we're like, let's do some interviews. You know, a lot of folks were, were doing online programming and we've got incredible responses to this program. And so we, we decided to make it permanent and we've been keeping it going. Season one was a really big season. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We had some incredible folks on there. We had local folks like um, Afrolatching Crystal Good, we had uh, um, photographer Roger May on there. And then we had some like national names come on. So Chris Cooper, who played Joe Canahan in the movie Make One. I think I just butchered his name. So if we could edit that. <laughs> but uh, we had... We had Chris Cooper online. We had um, Steve Earle come on, which was really cool. And, um, you know, every year since then, we've been bringing voices on to talk about not just Mine Wars history, but what's happening in Appalachia, um, how they discovered this work. I think that's always interesting to hear from folks because, like, as Brad was saying, Mr. Golden Horseshoe over here did not hear about 
the mine wars. And I always like to hear the story about like, how did folks come to this history? You know, where did that happen for them? Whether it was through the, through a family member, uh, hopefully, you know, stumbling on the museum's website or in town. So it's been really cool. This past season, I got to be the host for the first time. And then we brought on, you know, some local voices like Stevie Fullen. His family has been in Mate One uh, for the past hundred years. Um, his great-grandfather and great-grandmother. I think it was actually his grandmother and grandfather. Um, owned the first Black-owned dry cleaners in West Virginia, Black-owned business in Mate One. But then we also got to hear from um, Rachel Donaldson, who submitted this um, national parks registration um, to get the Jefferson County Courthouse on on the um, national register. So we've had like a really wide range of folks that we welcome into that to that series, and we typically um, run it live in the winter time. So the museum is only open through the spring from spring through the fall. And so we like to put out public programming, especially during the winter, just so folks know like, hey, we're still here, we're still working. And um, it's been a great way to connect with folks that we wouldn't normally otherwise get to. Very cool. Brad, you got any any other questions? Uh, just thank, thank you, Kenzie, for all the work that you do of preserving our story and amplifying our story. It's incredibly important work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it is, and we're 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 so grateful, Kenzie, for you to come on and spend some time with us here today. Um, one more time, give folks the the website, and um, so we and we'll include that in the show notes so they can get a link to it. But but where can people go to find out more about the Mine Wars Museum? Yeah, so we're online. We've got a website, wvminewars.org. That's where you can find you know visiting information lesson plans and teacher resources, online exhibits, online catalogs. I mean, check out our website. There's lots cool of swag more. too to buy, right? Yes. Yeah. Very cool yeah. swag. Um, we've got, we just published uh, or released, I guess I should say the, um, uh, a new red bandana, which is based on the design of the 1921 red bandana that miners wore into battle. Um, and they're union printed, they're hand drawn by our creative director, Sean Spiffer. They're really, really beautiful. Um, so you should go on there and get your red bandana so that everyone can know that you support the Mind Wars Museum. And we're also all over social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most recently TikTok. Um, so you can come check us out on social media. Brad, we're so behind on the TikTok world. I know. We got to get <laughs> we got to get accidental tomatoes on the TikTok world. So yeah. Well, Kenzie, thanks again. Um, again, we appreciate you so much. I'm really excited about the work y'all are doing um, at the Mine Wars Museum down there in Matewan and uh, preserving all of that really important heritage um, and inspiring people. You know to 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 reclaim their communities and and change the world. So thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. There was so much good stuff in uh, the conversation that Brad and I had with Kenzie. I hope that um, that you learned something new maybe uh, about the, the West Virginia mine wars and the labor movement that it was a part of and, and some of the underlying issues of, um, of 
exploitation and marginalization that that continue to be, um, you know, some of the the fallout from that time in our history. As always, if you have comments or feedback or suggestions uh, about this episode or any future episodes, please reach out to us on our social media channels. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes and you can drop us a note there or you can send us an email to accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.